Well, good morning, Mercy House. I'm Pastor Tommy. Really glad that you guys are with us here this Sunday. We normally have a um, scripture reading and prayer that happens, uh, but we're actually going to be incorporating that into the sermon this morning. It'll make a little bit more sense as we get going here. Um, but I'm really glad that you are with us this morning. It has been a little bit since I've been able to bring God's Word here at Mercy House. Uh, I want to thank a, a group of uh, men in our church who have just been really faithful in preaching and laboring over the preaching of God's Word this summer to give me a bit of a break. So it's been um, a huge blessing to myself, to my family. So thank you to Jake and Garrett and Mike Daling and Jimmy Oki and Corey uh, Tellman and Alden, um, who you saw earlier this morning. Um, it's been a huge blessing to me and to our family. But I haven't been sleeping this whole time, so not just taking all of that extra time to take lots of frequent cat naps, uh, but it's given me a lot of space to study and prepare for our fall sermon series, which I'm super excited and kind of chomping at the bit to get started with you all this morning. So if you're joining us for the first time, if you're a new student coming back, if you're uh, new to the area, or if you're just checking out Mercy House for the first time, this is like the perfect morning to come. Welcome. Um, we are starting our fall series on the book of Nehemiah called Arise and Build this morning. So this morning, I want to dedicate our time to providing you with an overview of the entire book as a whole. So if this is the only time you're coming to Mercy House, you're getting uh, an entire book preached to you, so it's a pretty good bang for your buck. Um, and what we're going to do is do that overview, and then I'm going to point out some major themes, which I think are going to help us navigate the book of Nehemiah um, over the next few months. So the book of Nehemiah is probably the most grand and epic historical accounts of a rebuilding of a people group ever. I know that sounds really dramatic, um, but let me give you some of that context for where things begin and where they end so that we can really understand where this fits in redemptive history and grasp why these 13 chapters um, are so critical and so incredible. And so as you look at the nation of Israel. Israel is a nation of God's people, and Israel exists within a covenant. It's an agreement with God, and it works really similar to a parent-child relationship. So you picture like the most ideal family situation. The parents um, are mature, they're loving, they're nurturing, they're caring for their children, uh, and there's this understanding that parents have with their children, which kind of goes like this. If you listen uh, to us, if you heed our warnings, if you obey our commands, life will go well for you. This is something that my mom communicated to me, something that we communicate with our children. The idea is like, hey, if you don't stick things in outlets, if you eat all of the vegetables that we're giving you, if you go to sleep when you're supposed to go to sleep, then you'll stay alive, you'll stay relatively healthy, and you'll stay relatively rested. But if you don't listen, if you disobey our commands, if you disregard our warnings, it will not go well for you. It just won't. And similarly, God gives his commandments to his children, Israel, and promises blessing. He promises protection. He promises just general goodness if they are able to listen and obey him. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy, God shows his people how to live and how to behave as his people. Now, this is not a precursor in order to become his people. God is speaking to his people, and he's telling them how they ought to live as his people. And so his desire is to lead them toward fullness of life and human flourishing. But what is demonstrated by God's people is they cannot listen and obey. As a people, they are prone to wander away from God. They are inherently disobedient, and they cannot maintain this covenant no matter how many times 
they try, how many opportunities they have. They worship other gods, they disobey God's commands, and Israel goes through some decent seasons and also some really bad seasons of following God, and they kind of fluctuates up and down, uh, but it comes to a boiling point with King Solomon. And so his sinfulness as a leader and his disobedience toward God leads God to split Israel in half. You've got the northern kingdom called Israel, and then you've got the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, this is important because this split historically uh, represents, in part, those who are largely disobedient in the north. So the northern kingdom, after their split, after the split, they have no good kings. Uh, they continue on being incredibly sinful, incredibly evil, and eventually they're just completely overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah is meant to represent the quote-unquote good ones of God's people. And they do okay for a little while. They have some good kings, they have some bad kings, but things, again, just start heading toward rampant sinfulness throughout the entire community, and it finally catches up to them. And God sends prophets to warn them, to tell them to repent and to turn back to God, to honor and obey the covenant and live within the covenant, or else the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to carry out his judgment, but they just don't listen to him. They don't. And sure enough, just like they were warned, just like the prophets said it would happen, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes. And the Babylonians, at first, they grab all of the Jewish leaders, the brightest, the wealthiest people of Israel, and they march them off into exile into Babylon. Then what they do is they set up uh, their siege equipment, and they besiege the city for almost three years. And they finally are able to make a breach in the city, and when the city has been lost, the king abandons the people, he abandons the city, and he runs out the back. And this is what happens to Zedekiah, the last king of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verse 9 through 11, it should be on your screen. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So that's the last king of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar murders all the leaders of Israel. He murders Zedekiah's children right in front of him, and immediately after that, they gouge out his eyes so that the last thing that he saw, that he ever sees with his eyes, is his children being murdered in front of him, and then he is torturously kept alive and imprisoned for the rest of his life. Then Nebuchadnezzar destroys all of Israel. The whole city is burned down and leveled until it's just a pile of ash and rubble on the ground. Nebuchadnezzar then drags most of the people of Israel along with their humiliated and blind king on the 1,600-mile journey into exile. And what's left behind is a tiny population, the poorest of the poor, pitiful people of Israel, just kind of sitting in the dust of their once great nation. So that's the starting point of the rebuilding of God's people. And we're not talking about a minor renovation or remodeling here. Israel is reduced to rubble. They are destroyed. And not just their buildings, their leadership is wiped clean. They're all murdered. The king has been blinded and humiliated in the worst possible way. He will spend the rest of his days in prison in Babylon. And the people are then carted off with nothing but the clothes on their back and just shame over their heads. 
But here's the really astounding thing that we need to remember. So when the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that destruction and and the exile of Israel would happen, he also prophesied the rebuilding and the restoration and the return of God's people. See, the Babylonians destroying Israel, it's not a flood moment. This is not God in his righteous wrath wanting to start with a clean slate. He already promised that he would never do that again in Genesis chapter 9 after Noah and the flood. And he promises that he would always remember his covenant with his people and that he would never exact this type of judgment again. And what that means is that this inevitable destruction of Israel, which was a result of the sinfulness of Israel, is not God saying, okay, I'm going to edit, undo everything and start with like a fresh document. It's actually something that is planned. It's a beautiful story of God's restorative and redemptive power over his people. Did you know that some trees have adapted to resist fire? I learned this fact uh, this past year, and it kind of blew my mind. There are actually even some trees that aren't just resilient toward fire, but they require a forest fire in order to sprout new seeds. So there's this tree, the lodgepole pine tree. They drop these cones that are completely sealed in resin all the way around, and they only can open to release their seeds after the heat of a significantly hot fire has physically melted the resin from around the cone. Isn't that wild? Sometimes new life can only come in the heat of fire. And sometimes new healthy growth requires a purging of the land. This is one of the themes of the book of Nehemiah. And something that you're going to see as you read through is that God is sovereign. That means that God is in control over what he allows his people to experience. And he can use hardship and trials and, and the destruction of things in our lives to bring healing and restoration and redemption into our lives. And so the history lesson I just briefly gave actually brings us right up to the beginning of, uh, of Ezra, the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are right next to each other in the Bible. They're two distinct books today, but historically they were referenced all as one book. And so the book of Ezra begins with Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquering the Babylonians, who we just talked about uh, conquering, conquering Israel. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, he makes a royal rule that says that exiles no longer have to be in exile. They can return back to whatever country they came from. And so some Jews return back to Israel. And what happens in the book of Ezra is that God puts it on the heart of a man named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Um, but when the temple gets rebuilt, it really doesn't have the desired effect of rebuilding all the people to their former glory. God's presence doesn't show up in the temple. The people of Israel are in total, in total disarray still. And so Ezra, a teacher of God's law, he's a prophet, he begins shepherding the hearts of Israel back toward God spiritually by teaching them the law. But there really isn't a huge response by God's people. This is actually where we open up with Nehemiah. And so this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to read selected passages from the book of Nehemiah to help give you a sense of the complete narrative. My desire was to read the entire book of Nehemiah. Uh, it would take about an hour and 20 minutes. Everyone I told said it was not a great idea. So instead, what I've done is uh, it, it'll take about 10 minutes to read selected portions. And I, I want to be able to give you a, a broad scope and vision the narrative. So if you have your phone, there should, it should be on here. You can go to mercyhouse365.org slash read, um, and you'll have it broken down with the passages and the references on there. It'll be in the ESV translation. Um, 
and you can follow along with me. Um, I'm, give you, I'm gonna give you a second to, to, to get there. We didn't wanna put these all on the screens because it's, it's a lot of scripture and we do a bit of jumping around. I'm gonna give you a second to get there. While you get there, let's, um, let's pray before we read. Father, you are, uh, you are a holy and good God and we as humans do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we thank you for your word that you have given us, that has proceeded from your mouth and has been inscribed on these pages for us to be able to read. We thank you for your word that feeds us and sustains us this morning. God, I pray that the people in this room would, including myself, would have ears to hear and eyes to see and minds which are focused so that we can receive what you would have for us in your word this morning. God, this is your word. It does not return void. So I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts. And I pray that the truths which are carried by your word would be eternally written on the tablets of our hearts, God. We thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. There your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to God, 
to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to, my, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Then I went up in the night of the valley, by the valley, and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when, San, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we cannot, I'm sorry, by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near, near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the spaces, space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? 
Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, that I have done for these people. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shephaiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the, Lev the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people could understand the reading. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. 
And, all, and, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, the, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is this house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said, what is this evil thing you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Nehemiah is divided into two major movements. You should see a slide that helps you visualize what the book looks like. The first half, you have the work and the rebuilding of the wall. and the second half, you have the law and the rebuilding of worship in Israel. These two movements are separated right in the middle of the book by the actual completion of the wall itself. And the major themes that you see in the first movement have to do with the physical protection of Israel, and then later on you see this shift toward the spiritual protection of Israel. It's a very broad way to understand the book of Nehemiah. And the very basic summary of the whole book is this. The story begins with Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he's hearing about Israel. He's hearing that the city's in ruins, the walls are burned, and it's reported that the people who have survived the exile, they're in great duress and great shame. And upon hearing this about his people, Nehemiah, who's essentially a prince in Persia at this point, he's a man of great honor, great prestige, he's living in luxury and comfort. When he hears about this and his people, he weeps he mourns and he prays. He does this for days. And he prays that God would restore his brothers and his sisters and for himself to have an opportunity to help his people. And so finally, he's miraculously given this opportunity to do so. And the king of Persia allows him to go. But not only that, he actually funds the project, the rebuilding project. 
And so he goes, Nehemiah goes, and he begins planning the rebuild, and he calls people of Israel to join him in this rebuilding. They get off to a great start. Then they face some opposition, which really does test Nehemiah's calling, uh, but it really just reveals his heart and his great leadership skills. The wall is then completed in a mere 52 days, less than two months. And people are encouraged to come back into the city. Ezra, who we heard about earlier, he comes onto the scene, and they all gather as one big city to read the Word of God all morning. So I don't know if you caught that. They read it all morning. And then this leads all of Israel to a great revival in God's people. They confess their sin. They, they rededicate themselves to God and to one another by signing a covenant as a community. And they basically make a promise all together to say, look, we're going to love God. We're going to obey God. We're going to worship God. Everything in Israel is amazing. It's incredible. The city has been rebuilt. The people have been restored. Worship and praise is heard for miles. So Nehemiah is like, my work is done. Let me go back to my normal day job. So he goes back. And the last chapter is him coming back to Jerusalem, and what he sees and what he describes is horribly anticlimactic. It's really depressing. So instead of the rebuilding of their city and the rededication of their hearts leading to this community uh, who is physically and spiritually alive and flourishing as they live within God's covenant, what Nehemiah finds is a people who are an absolute mess. They end up giving Tobiah, who is a person from the very beginning, who was the original person who ridiculed and opposed the building, who threatened their lives, and who mocked God. They let him move into the temple, and he makes his room in the room where they're supposed to be storing the tithes and offerings that are being given to God, which they're not doing to begin with. The room is empty, except for this guy's personal belongings. They stopped supporting their priests and the Levites. So the priests and the Levites who are doing the work of church, the, the professional ministers at that time, they had to go back home so they could support themselves and eat. And so the community as a whole rejects God's commands to be holy and, and a set-apart people by not marrying other people. But instead, they go and they marry people who hate God. They also disregard the Sabbath. They turn uh, the temple into a marketplace on the Sabbath. And Nehemiah is furious. The book ends with him literally taking Tobias's furniture and throwing it into the street. This is a real moment in history. He takes time to rebuke all of the leaders. He calls everyone together and calls out every single person, and he gets so frustrated that he writes this. In chapter 13, verse 25, it says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Talk about really intense church discipline. He is frustrated. The book ends in these final verses. These are the last verses of Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah speaking. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Nehemiah cleans house, he takes time to correct Israel. In the words of our previous sermon series, he's resetting the fractures that have accumulated in the body of God's people. But when you see all of this in the context of Israel's historical and perpetual disobedience toward God, the book ends with what is a hopeless and vain correction. Israel will never change. 
He, even Nehemiah is deflated here, and I think it's because he's realizing just how eternally fractured and broken Israel is. And the fact that they will always inevitably migrate towards sin, towards self and communal destruction. And no new temple, no beautiful wall, no successful community building project that's going to bring everyone together, no amount of zealous rededication to God and to one another. None of that is enough to change the underlying heart condition of Israel. So where's the gospel? Because that's pretty depressing. Well, Nehemiah is a sad book. It, it ends weirdly. It's like shooting off into the stratosphere, and then that last chapter is like, wait, what happened? The gospel is in every nook and cranny of the book of Nehemiah. And I'm so excited for us to be able to uncover those beautiful facets over the next few months together. And one of the things that is important as we look verse by verse through Nehemiah is to not over-spiritualize every single detail of a narrative um, and get lost in the weeds. This is why I wanted to take a Sunday to look at the book as a whole. Because when you take a step back, you can observe some of the themes that the entire book uh, has uh, and, and what that, the, the themes do is they form what is called the melodic line, which is kind of a thread that runs through the whole book from the start to the finish, and all the smaller details, everything that's being communicated is pointing back toward this truth. And I think one of the melodic lines running through the, big, the book of Nehemiah is this. This should also be on your screen. That God is rebuilding his people for himself, and nothing will stop him from accomplishing this. Let me say that again. God is rebuilding his people for himself, and nothing will stop him from accomplishing this. God is rebuilding because the original build is broken. God created the world and everything in it, and he looks out at his creation in Genesis 1, at everything that he had built, and he had declared, this is good. Not broken, this is good. And then sin enters into creation through the disobedience of man, and that good creation was broken. And not just in need of a little touch-up and remodeling here and there. Like it fundamentally broke humanity, and all of creation was destroyed. But God had a plan to rebuild his people, and it would be through the covenant relationship that we talked about at the very beginning. The problem with covenants is that they only work when both parties fulfill their end of the covenant. And Israel had failed over and over and over again in fulfilling their end of the covenant. But God doesn't give up on rebuilds. He doesn't run out of patience. He doesn't run out of materials. God is going to rebuild, restore, and redeem his people no matter what. Despite Satan's schemes to oppose the building from outside the community, despite division and disunity and conspiracy that slows down the building, the rebuilding from within the community, and despite the very heart of the problem of Israel, which is in the heart of each and every man and woman who is irreparably broken because of sin and therefore incapable of fulfilling this covenant. So how do we know God is going to do this, and what is he going to do? Well, he promises us that he will do this work. He promises us that he will rebuild. This is what I want to close with, and I hope this is what you carry in your heart as we read and study Nehemiah together this fall, that God had a plan and a promise. He wasn't rebuilding as he went. God doesn't just patch holes and slap new paint on things and call them new. That's not our God. He wasn't done with just the rebuilding of the temple and of the walls. No, he let Israel know his plan way ahead of time, even before Israel was, was even destroyed and exiled to begin with. 
In Jeremiah 31, you see, you first see in that section God's plan to rebuild and restore Israel after its destruction and exile, which is crazy. He's just letting them know, hey, this is going to happen. But then you see God's promise to solve the problem at the very center of it all. This is going to be on your screens. Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. And jump down to verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of, Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There is no greater promise for Israel than this. God is saying... I will rebuild you. You who are rubble and ash, I will restore you. And I will make a new covenant with you because you can't keep the original covenant. But I will not quit on you, even though you have over and over again quit on me. You are mine, and as a husband, hold fast to his wife no matter what. So I will hold fast to you. This Old Covenant has shown how the problem is not in the actions of Israel. It's actually in their hearts. And so what God is going to do is he's going to write the law into the heart of the Israelites. Not as external rules that Israel is, is just awful at following, but he will actually transform hearts to live and breathe what is right. God says, you will be my people through and through. And the effects of sin will not keep you separated from me, but, will, but, but you will be restored back to me. And the infection of sin in your hearts will be healed. And you won't be prone to wander, but you'll actually be prone and drawn to me. This is the gospel. And God is tenderly promising Israel that he's going to rebuild them. He's going to restore them. He's going to make this new covenant for them while they're living in licentiousness and sin. They're laughing in his face. They're making a mockery of him and his love and in breaking the covenant. That's what, ha that's what was happening as Jeremiah was making um, his prophecy. And the scene was the same when God actually cut the new covenant. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we remember this new covenant which is promised all the way back in Jeremiah 31, before the events of Nehemiah, and which was instituted and fulfilled in Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed. And this new covenant came at a price. 
in order for us to be able to receive new hearts, in order for our sin to be forgiven, for our iniquities to be forgiven, it required the sacrifice of a spotless, righteous, perfect man, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, history shows us that man's heart is sick beyond repair. And that this sickness doesn't just last a single lifetime, but it is an eternal sickness leading to eternal destruction. So a new heart is available to you, a complete and total rebuild, a complete restoration and new life is available for those who place their faith in Jesus. This is something that you can receive here today. And after the sermon, I'm going to be down here while people are coming up for communion. And if you want to talk and receive prayer or ask questions, I'm going to be available for you to do that. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, our hope is complete because the rebuild is already complete. Our hearts, as we follow Jesus, are rebuilt. But our flesh and our community is playing catch-up. And that's what sanctification is. It's the process of being made into what we are, of being made holy as we actually are holy. So my encouragement to you, if you are a Christian, is to embrace the rebuilding process. Embrace it, brothers and sisters. It is not comfortable. Walls will have to be torn down. Some of you are experiencing this right now. Things that we feel might be critically structural in our lives and in our hearts, may have to be demolished. Sin and areas of our lives that have been corrupted by sin will have to be reduced to rubble before the Lord can build something new. That's the process of being rebuilt, of being restored, be made new again. This is not just true for you. Some of you sit here, and I know you're going through that rebuilding right now. And that's real. And I want to bless you and encourage you and pray for you as you go through that. We as a community, as a church, are also experiencing this. If you're new here, you're not going to know anything that I'm about to say. And by the grace of God, that's awesome. But for those of us who have been here for a little while, the last two years have been really challenging. I mean, talk about forest fires. Over this past year, we've lost our founding pastor and had to say goodbye to him and his wife. We said goodbye to another elder and his beautiful family. We lost our beloved founding church admin of 20 years and, and, and beloved friend. We said goodbye to our faithful worship pastor who had been here for, through the hardest parts of COVID. And then we also lost two of our incredibly gifted and selfless uh, deacons. And then we also had to deal with COVID, that whole thing. And those are just like the surface-level challenges, things that I can talk to you about from the front. If you want to talk about a forest fire, a purging fire, that's what we went through, Mercy House. But sometimes, as I said earlier, new healthy growth requires a purging of the land. We've had time as a church to grieve and mourn, and some of us will need to continue doing that. We've begun resetting some of the fractures and the areas of brokenness in our church, and we'll continue doing that until Jesus comes back. But the tide is turning here, Mercy House. The season is changing. And my hope and my prayer, this is the hope and prayer of the elders as well, is that studying Nehemiah will help lead our community into further healing and bring us into a season of renewed strength and power in the Spirit 
of spiritual vibrancy and fruitfulness and flourishing as a community. And so may we, as we read the book of Nehemiah, be encouraged and hopeful at what a community of faithful, obedient, God-dependent, Holy Spirit-infused people can do. And Lord willing, we will come together, new members, veteran members, the young bucks in the room, the seasoned warriors will be able to come together and arise and build. In Nehemiah 4, verse 14, Nehemiah says this at the beginning of the building. As they face their first opposition, he says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Let's pray. God, you are a God of your word, and what you say happens. God, thank you for the many promises, hopeful, encouraging promises that we see in Scripture. Help us in seasons of challenge, in seasons of rebuilding as we sit in rubble and ash to remember your promises, God. Lord, we confess that becoming a new creation is at times hard and painful. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us, through your spirit, the power to be able to endure, the hope to be able to persevere. And I pray that you would do the hard work of rebuilding, God. Thank you that you love us enough to not just look over sinfulness in our lives and brokenness and areas of hurt and trauma, but you love us enough to want to walk us into healing and new life. And so I pray, God, that you would do that work. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust others who love you and know you as they walk alongside us. God, I pray for our church as a whole that you would bring us into a new season of health, God, of flourishing as your body. Lord, not to just forget the things that we've been through, but, Lord, that you would bring us to a new level of healing and hope in you. God, this is your church, and you promised to build your church. You say, I will build my church, and that the gates of hell shall not prevail. And so, Lord, we trust you to do that. We thank you for that promise. Help us to believe it, God. I pray now that as we celebrate and remember this new covenant that you have invited us into, we thank you for your sacrifice, which enables us to be participating in this covenant, God. Thank you that you uphold the covenant even when we cannot. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. I pray that you would help us to walk faithfully and obediently, and I pray that you would continue to write your law on our hearts eternally. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.